Welcome to Hiawatha Church. Uh, again, my name's Chris, and um, I, uh, yeah, I just want to thank you guys for your prayers. I, Aletha and I, I don't know if you guys know this or not, but Aletha and I last week, um, most of you probably don't, but we weren't here. We were visiting Center Church, uh, our second church plant in two years uh, up in Fridley. If you guys didn't know that, we planted a church uh, this past uh, fall, helped to start that church, and, and uh, it's always a double blessing of, I think, for us being at a different church like that, especially in our network, we can kind of participate in the grace of God a lot, you know, and just kind of see the grace of God dispensed in a special way through a different church and just to see what God's doing in a different setting. And, and this is, in, in this particular case, is one of our churches. And so just fun to be there and uh, see what God's up to already. But also as I'm sitting there, I'm just really missing Hiawatha. <laughs> just kind of like, I love being here. I was trying to fight back this kind of, uh, I just don't, I don't want to be here either. Like I do, but I don't, you know, don't record this part. But um, <laughs> I don't want Kevin to hear that, but because I did love being there, but at the same time, just really missed you guys and missed uh, our church, and this really is family to us, and we love our city, love our church, and what God's been doing here. It's just been, um, uh, just been incredible, just for unknown reasons why God's wanted be, why He's wanted to be so good to us. It's just, uh, just been crazy. So, um, but anyway, we're gonna uh, jump right in today. Lots to talk about in First Thessalonians four. Uh, we are continuing our series in this book. Um, if you're just joining us, welcome. Uh, you're Joining us in the middle of a series, really, we're going to finish this up in about, I think, four or five weeks, early December or so, so we're getting uh, there. There's five chapters in this book, and we're starting chapter four today. Uh, but this book was written, if you're uh, unaware, by the Apostle Paul, who wrote 13 of the 27 New Testament books, and uh, he, uh, we read this back in Acts 17 earlier, but in, in context, he planted this church. It's a Macedonian church. It's in northern Macedonia. Acts 17 tells a story of this, but he was driven out of the city in an untimely manner by an angry mob. So he wanted to be there longer than he, than he was. He's in the southern part of Macedonia, or, or southern Greece, um, currently in Athens, and writing back to him, hearing things about them, sending Timothy, his associate, to encourage him. He wants to know about their faith, and so he wants to get report back um, on how they're doing. And so he read a little bit about that, too, in uh, chapters uh, 2 and 3. But this is one of his letters that he wrote to them to, to encourage them in the faith, like a lot of his letters that he writes have that same context. He wants to encourage the church. So they're, they're probably being read over non-Christians as well, but just had this in mind for those of you who are Christians especially. If you're not, this still applies to you, of course, too, but if you're not yet. But if you're a Christian, the New Testament was written to Christians. They're written to people who already know the answers. They, they know what they're supposed to know to be saved, but the, the letters are written to people who forget. They're pervasive, forgetful people pervasively forgetful people, and, and Paul knows this, and so he writes to them to encourage and to remind them of things they're already doing really well, but do so more and more. Believe in this gospel of grace more and more that you, so, you do so well already and that you're preaching so well to the lost, the lost around you. So, so Paul writes this letter to do those kinds of things. It's no exception. It's not different than other New Testament letters, but uh, he writes this letter around 80, 51, 52, and a second letter, Second Thessalonians, uh, right about six months or so after that, so pretty quickly after that. Uh, but really just a short 30 years or so uh, after Jesus died on a cross and purchased the church with his blood. A church just like, Thessalonica, in, like in Thessalonica and a church just like here in Minneapolis, in Hiawatha Church. Real people, messy, saved by grace, not by being good people, but just the walking wounded church. People just stumbling in, full of their sin, but being covered by the, the blanket of God's grace and being just grateful for that. And so that's really what churches are. Uh, and we, we are being transformed by the Spirit, but that's not what God expects first. He expects us to just have faith ongoingly in Him uh, before, um, before that sanctification occurs, which we'll define later, and uh, Peter mentioned that. Spence did last week as well in his sermon, but I'll do that again here today because it's a part of today's, uh, today's passage. So today we're going to talk about uh, sexual sin so the topic here is God's will that we abstain from sexual sin. I just wanted to say right off the bat, though, this is not uh, going to be a topical sermon on this matter, meaning we're, we're not going to take a, a number of bunny trails and kind of topically approach this with proof texts and things like that from a variety of places in the Bible. We are going to go different places, but primarily this is a, this is a sermon on 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 to 8 that happens to talk about sexual sin. That's different. Been saying this is a kind of like last summer we did big questions so someone if someone asked us about what's the deal with sexual sin or how do we battle that or what's the bible have to say about it that'd be a different approach so i'm saying this so you know that we will not answer all your questions uh, there will be things even big things that, that we will leave on the cutting room floor because of time 
but so we can use the language of 1 Thessalonians 4 to address this issue. And so Paul says a few things specifically here. He doesn't elsewhere on the topic that is, uh, I think, really, really helpful and that we'll especially focus on today rather than just trying to cover the whole thing in the short time we have. So with that in mind, that disclaimer said, let's read the passage today from 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 to 8, and we'll come back and make some comments here. So verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Let me pray. God, thank you for this passage. Uh, thank you so much for loving us. Uh, to the end, that you would speak hard things, that you would speak grace, but also the reality of the fact that we are really raised from the dead. We are truly given the Holy Spirit, and that comes with an expectation to walk in light of that grace-given reality, that grace-filled reality. So, uh, God, I pray we'd leave here changed wherever we are with this issue. All, all of us are sexually confused on some level, and so, God, wherever we are presently or past or where we will be in the future, may you equip us for that. But right now in the present especially, I pray we'd leave healed with a greater picture of a God who bled on a cross for our sins and captivated by that beauty so much that it would kind of trump other pseudo-beautiful things in our life that aren't really beautiful at all, uh, but as Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, so does sin. Uh, it does not feed the soul, and it leads us right away from you and, and unto an eternal hell. So God, I pray this would be a, a, an encouraging but weighty, and the gospel does that. It's so freeing and yet so challenging at the same time. I pray that that balance would be held high um, in, in the right proper balance as this chapter uh, dictates. So uh, spirit, guide us in, in our time and, and leave us changed in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so a couple of asides here in verse 1 to begin, and we'll spend most of our time in verses 2 to 8. But in verse 1, he starts with finally, uh, which is kind of like, in the context of this letter, it's kind of like saying, you're almost done to a marathon runner at, at mile 16, but um, which you shouldn't do, I've heard. I've never ran a marathon, but I've heard don't do that. But uh, he's, cause he's not quite done yet. He's got a lot more to say. But the finally here is more to say that he's getting to the main point of the letter after a lengthy introduction. So chapters one to three is, is basically one long, three chapter long intro. And so there's a lot to say about being thankful for the church and he's talking about circumstantial matters, about trying to be close to them, to see them face to face as he shares his pastoral heart for them, talks about the gospel and how the gospel's impacting them, how thankful he is for that. A whole slew of things, the word of God, the wrath of God, a lot of good gospel stuff there. But here he says, basically, this is why I'm really writing you. I've heard some things. You've told me some things. I'm writing back to you. I, I'm, I'm getting wind that, that there's subtly, ever so slightly, some false doctrine starting to creep into the church a little bit. Or at least there's some things you're wondering that I can kind of, as a good pastor, he's kind of discerning and sensing that the enemy might be up to something, that Satan might be up to something, that false teachers might be up to something, that the church might be kind of just having a propensity to listen to these things they shouldn't, and he writes back to kind of course correct. And so this isn't just, this isn't it alone here in today's passage. We'll come to more of this in future weeks as it pertains to like Christ's second coming and all that stuff. They're entertaining some things or wondering some things there too. But this is a big reason why he is writing. He's, he's urging them to walk in a way that pleases God. We please God by faith, and so just to piece that in, to walk in a way of trust, walk in a way of, of faith, and we'll unpack that. But what's interesting here, and just as, in terms of an aside, what's interesting is, as I said before, th they're already doing it. This is one of the letters in, in the New Testament that, that he has nothing really bad to say about the church, and he has some really tough things, some tough love things to say about many of his churches, like the church in Galatia and the church in Corinth being two of the premier examples in the New Testament, but here he doesn't have much bad to say. So they're believing the right things, they're doing the right things, 
but he urges them to do so uh, more and more. And I think this reminds us that whatever the biblical topic is Christians, uh, it reminds us that it's okay to build our lives, our entire lives, around repetition rather than the vain pursuit of something new. That's a really important thing for, I think, especially 21st century Americans to understand that, that maybe ancient Christians or Christians in different cultures did not have to wrestle with as much as we do. We're always on the lookout for something new and, and just sexy and different and something that will sell and something that will just be better than the old thing that we already know. What else can I pursue? What else can I add to my repertoire? And but, but really what the Bible's saying is what, what's most important is what's old. What's most important is what you already know. What's most important is actually quite simple. What's most important is foolish to the world. Foolishness. God hanging on a cross in a cursed manner. That's the center of our spirituality, something that we, we can know and even children can know. It's accessible. It's deep. We'll never finish learning it, but on an accessible kind of introductory level at least, kids can know this and believe in it all, all the time as God enables it. And so what's most important is the old rather than the vain pursuit of something new. And obviously, for those of you who are hearing things, we'll never know this book fully and, and ultimately and perfectly. So in that sense, there will always be kind of new things. But the point is, don't add to Christ, don't add to the gospel, don't add to things that uh, God says that, that this is it. Um, so, so really what Paul is getting at here, Paul's really about to preach a mini-sermon in writing uh, here that, that this church not, not only already heard, but that they were practicing quite well. I mean, it's one thing for this church to know, but not to be practicing. And Paul will say, all right, now we've really got to talk to them about this. And that'd be okay. He does that to other churches, like, again, like church in Corinth. But this is a church that knew the right answers and also was practicing well. And he says, basically what Paul's saying here is, they need to hear it again. It's not sufficient that they keep going without me continuing to preach the same message over and over and over again to them. It's not okay. And so he takes time, uh, strength, prayer, ink here as he, as he writes uh, to say the same thing over and over. And so if you're ever tempted then to add to Christ, uh, read passages like this and look at what Paul's doing. Look at how he's saying, urge more and more. Look at what he's saying about You've already believed these things. It's no trouble for me to write to you the same things again and again, as he says in one of his different letters. It's, not, it's actually good for you. It's a safeguard for you, he says, if I think in Philippians. It's a safeguard for you, and it's good for me. It's good for my soul as one of your pastor, pastoral types in your life to write these things and say these things to you yet again. All right, so in verse 1 then, finally, brothers, we ask and urge you, in the Lord Jesus, that as you received from us, past tense, how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you're doing, you're doing well, that you do so more and more. Okay, then he, then he gets specific in verse 2. Talking about, in verse, actually, verse 3, uh, the will of God, he says, what, what God really wants for us as Christians is that we be sanctified. What the will of God is, God's will for our life, is that we be sanctified. So, what is sanctification? A couple quick things here. Uh, Spence talked about this last week a little bit too, so I won't go into it a ton. But uh, sanctification comes from a word meaning to be set apart or to be holy. It has to do with the transformative process of a Christian becoming more like Jesus post-conversion. So the chronology there is really important. It's after we convert, after we fall on our knees and say, Jesus, save me from my sins, fill me with your Holy Spirit. It's something he accomplishes in us on a little bit more of a transformative, subjective level uh, due to his dwelling within us by, by his spirit. So in that sense, it's a part of our salvation experience. So we talk a lot about, as the Bible does, about justification and sanctification, the relationship between those two. Justification being justified before God based on our faith in him, trust in him, being washed in him. And sanctification has more to do with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit helping us to live out of our justification, helping us to take encouragement in it and peace in it and then to live differently in, uh, in light of it. So there's a lot to say about what that means, and he talks about part of that looking like sexual purity, which we'll talk about today, but on a little bit broader of a scope, it means a lot more than that. Uh, in, in this letter alone, we've seen that sanctification consists of things like suffering well with Jesus, suffering unto hope, being reminded through our suffering that it's not about us, not about us. 
uh, but, 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 but longing for the future return of Christ through our sufferings and, and aligning ourselves with Christ's sufferings as we bring a message of peace and hope and joy to a dead and dying world. Uh, killing our sin with Jesus' help, which we'll talk about a lot today, but also things like being thankful to God for everything in life. We're not thankful people when we're not saved. Even as Christians, we're not thankful people all the time. The things that make us, the, the thing that makes us thankful is the gospel, a, a God who came into the world to die for our sins. As that resonates, we become more and more thankful because before that impacts our life, we think we're more in control of our life than we really are. And if we think that, we're less thankful because who are we going to thank for good things if we think that we work them out? You don't thank things, th- thank yourself for things that are just good in your life, right? It's just because you, you, you don't thank yourself for things. You thank other people, or in this case, you thank God. So God gives salvation uh, God gives all good things and all blessings. If we believe that, we become just more thankful on a, on a regular basis. So that's been a big piece of this letter as well. Paul's just deeply, deeply, deeply thankful for everything in the church because nothing good comes from us except for, uh, from God. All, all good things come from God, right? So nothing good flows from us. So everything good in the church is something to thank God, thank God for. That's a process of being sanctified, too. That's something Jesus was. He embodied. He was thankful as God the Son to God the Father, and, but also something that um, so it makes us resemble him, but also just generally more holy. To be holy is to be thankful. To be unholy and sinful is to be not thankful. Thankfulness is one of the premier Christian virtues in the New Testament. The only place it comes from is from God. The only place it comes from is from understanding that all good things, especially salvation, is a gift and not something we work out on our own strength. So we've seen this in the letter. Uh, God saves us by grace, but he also, that's justification, but he also continues his work in our lives. Verse 8, this is huge, by the Holy Spirit. In other words, by his continued purifying grace, not our works. And so, Another uh, way to look at this in, in chart form here uh, is to see how God's grace is really applied to our life holistically on kind of both sides of the gospel coin, through the cross and the resurrection. So when Jesus dies for our sins, the Bible says he forgives, kind of in a very punctilier way. So he forgives, he washes, he absorbs punishment. He's not going to die again. This is once in history. He, he, he accomplishes this salvation for us. He dies in our place. He forgives us, washes us, absorbs the punishment, the wrath of God in our place. He removes sin. The resurrection, the other side of that same coin, is the idea that he raises up to make possible a new way of living, to defeat death, to be glorified. So in that, he recreates us, he empowers us, he transfigures us. This is more the idea of the application of spirit-driven power. But here's the thing. Both of these are a gift from God, not just the left column. Please understand that. It, it is one of the things that I think it's predominant, in my experience, just personally, but as I, as I just serve as a pastor in the church and talk to more people, I think a lot of Christians think the left side's a gift, but the right side's up to you. Try really hard, work really hard on the right side, because after Jesus forgives you, he says, try really hard to apply the power that I kind of promise and kind of give, but you really have to live in light of it. And then he kind of lets us go. But when Paul says, I give you the Holy, God gives you the Holy Spirit in, in his sanctification of you, he's saying it's not your flesh, it's not your work, it's the presence alone of the Holy Spirit that causes you to do good, that gives you the propensity to worship him and not yourself, that to be thankful and not turned inward, that alone is, is a gift. Acts 5.31 says that God grants repentance. He gives the ability to turn from our old way and, and, and into the new way of living. He gives that. He grants it. He grants repentance. It's that idea. Actually, it comes up a lot in the book of Acts. It's just one verse. Acts 5.31. But both are a gift. Uh, John Calvin here says that uh, one of the 16th century reformers, and actually appropriate, today is Reformation Day, so happy Reformation Day to the couple of you that may have realized that. But um, but by, uh, he says, by partaking of Christ, we, we principally receive a double grace. So double grace, that's important. Namely, that being reconciled to God through Christ's blamelessness, we may have in heaven a gracious father instead of a judge, justification. And secondly, 
that sanctified by Christ's spirit, we may cultivate blamelessness and purity of life. That second thing is a grace, meaning not from you, from the Holy Spirit, given, so we pray. Part of what happens when we're saved is God, save me, justify me before you, make me innocent before you by substituting yourself for me. But we also pray, God, give me good works because they simply do not originate in me. Give me good works to walk in. Sanctify my heart. Transform me from the inside because all the, the prodding outside things, that righteous things holy, that exist in the world can poke at me, but they can't change the heart. And so we need the Holy Spirit. We need God to live inside us to make this possible. Both are a gift. And so sanctification then, the, the process of becoming holy as a Christian, this is key, is not just some moral expectation of God. It's something he makes possible in our lives. Paul is clear. He calls us to holiness. He gives us his Holy Spirit. Not the flesh. He calls us to the flesh, but he gives us his spirit. This is meant to be a relief. And, and for those of us, all of us are sexually twisted in some way, but for those of us who are really in the throes of sexual sin, maybe particularly, this is meant to be a relief, not to be a burden to you, but to say the ability to, to not look at porn, to stop sleeping with that prostitute, to stop sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend, that ability is not inside you, so stop trying. Pray that God gives you that repentance, gives you that grace, that, that if you believe in justification, that you would believe that, that you would live out of it. And believe the same grace that saved you from your sins is the same grace that will give you less of a desire, less of a propensity, somewhere else to go besides sexual sin. It's meant to be a relief. It's meant to prompt you to something. I think we see this too on a horizontal level a lot. When, when you are loved unconditionally, forgiven unconditionally by someone, that changes you, right? That sanctifies you. It transforms you in a way, on a human level, on a lesser level than, than all of this. But we see this happen, right? Like with, with your spouse or a friend or even a stranger or a boss or a coworker. If you're loved or shown kindness to or if, if you are forgiven, that's going to do something in your soul and make you live maybe a little bit differently towards them and just maybe generally in life than you otherwise did. So we know this is true. We don't need the Bible here. We do, but you know, you know what I'm saying. We don't actually need it alone. We, we, we can look at experience, too, to testify to this and to say, love sanctifies. Love changes us. On a, on a human, horizontal, interpersonal level, how much more, then, is the point here, on a vertical, divine level? God has loved you to the point of bleeding on a cross for you and to the point of death. He loves you. If, if, that, if we get that, it's going to, it's going, that justifies us, it's going to bleed into our, our sanctification, flow into our sanctification. It's going to change us. Not perfectly in this life, but it is going to, it can't not wreck us. It can't not confront us. It can't not change on, on some level. So if you've seen that on a human level, apply that to the divine level and understand. This is what Paul's the backdrop to all Paul's saying is you've been saved have you forgotten the nature of that salvation? Apply that to the way you live, the way you kill sin. Understand he's giving you sanctification, but understand too that that sanctification comes from understanding your justification, the fact that you've, you've been died for. All right, so uh, that's a couple of things on sanctification there, but I want to uh, frame the rest of today uh, kind of around a, a threefold approach here, the, the what, the why, and the how. So what, what kind of particular sanctification is being talked about? Why is this his will? Secondly, very important, and then uh, the how. And, and again, we'll skim the surface here, but some things from this passage specifically. So secondly is, is the what here. What kind of particular sanctification? We've been talking about this. He says that, that we as Christians abstain from sexual immorality. Could have been a lot of things there. He writes about this issue, I think, uh, in particular because Thessalonica was a very, very sexually confused culture, a lot like ours. These are people, Christians, who are coming out of that lifestyle. All kinds of sexually twisted things. They're coming out of that and certainly being enticed still by it in their old self. But he's writing to protect them and to say, remember, 
what God has called you to, remember where you used to be, but how God lovingly came to your rescue and pulled you out of that. Live like that's the case uh, still. So he focuses on this. Now, it's, uh, it's important here to note that Paul says these things in verse 2. He says, he gave these instructions through the Lord Jesus. That's important, a uh, few words there. If you'd like to underline things in your Bible, that's a good one. Uh, through the Lord Jesus, meaning the, uh, not just that he had the authority, the, the Jesus-given or Spirit-given authority to write part of the Bible and to say these things over the church, but more than that, that they themselves, these things, these teachings, were things explicitly taught by Christ. So Paul will do that a lot in his letters. Sometimes he'll say, you know, he has the Spirit of God, a special grace to write part of the Bible, but he'll also be clear when Jesus explicitly says some things in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these, these theological histories of Christ's life and his death and resurrection. When it really comes up explicitly, he'll quote or he'll say things like, well, this is from the Lord, not me even though it's um, Paul's teachings are still from the Lord too, uh, independently. But still, Christ taught this. So then when we look ahead or kind of look back, in one sense, to Christ himself on the matter of sexual immorality, he talks a lot about it. But a couple of things here that are, are highlights, we see that he defines marriage and relatedly good sex as between a man and a woman for life. Matthew 19.4 uh, says, Jesus answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, this is from Genesis 2, the second chapter of the Bible, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? Have you not read that? What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. We'll come back to this one. But what he implies here too, and elsewhere in Matthew 5, I'll read from here in a second, is that everything else outside of that definition is sexual immorality. Everything else. Whether fornication or adultery, whether in the body or in the heart. And so he's careful to say in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 28, Jesus' words, I, I say to you, actually in context he says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, quoted in the Ten Commandments, but I say to you, Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So it's a hard issue. He raises the bar. He, he instantly levels the playing field before him as he teaches these matters. Because of the maybe, just throwing out a number here, but the, the 10 in 1,000 or the 10 in 500 that had committed actual physical bodily adultery and, and the, the others who hadn't, he levels the field by saying, actually, all of you who haven't, you have right here in your heart. You've actually committed adultery about 30 times today already as you're hearing this. Oh, and overnight when you were dreaming, you know, or something too. So it's pervasive. It's a heart issue, not merely a physical one. God wants our hearts. He doesn't want you just to obey externally without being, he wants your heart. He, he looks at, the Bible says he looks at the heart. Man looks on the outside, God looks on the inside. What's he seeing when he looks inside your heart? the scariest thing you'll ever think about, right? I mean, that, that God knows your thoughts, your intentions, your motives, which are hardly ever pure. Mine aren't. Hardly ever, right? God helps us in that endeavor, of course, but speaking from a human perspective, uh, outside of Christ especially, if it's a heart issue, we're toast. So this is a hugely important matter to apply as we see Paul say, as Jesus spoke on these things, or as he was explicit on these things, through Jesus I teach these instructions we have to remember that there's a wider scope here. He's not just saying don't commit physically, physical adultery. He's talking about the heart. He's talking about something internal. And so uh, if it's a heart issue then, it's an insurmountable task. That's part of what Jesus is trying to get at in Matthew 5. It's, it's too far above us. Uh, Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things. All things. The most deceitful thing in the universe is your heart mine. It's desperately, desperately sick. Who can understand it? This is what the heart, this is the heart of the matter. I don't mean to use a pun there, but that's, that's the point. The heart of the matter is that the heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately sick. Who can understand this? And so, and God knows this. God knows sin is not outside, it's inside primarily. It's out there, but it's primarily in here. And so he sets out to fix that through his son. But with sexual, uh, purity in mind, you know, if this is all true, 
then it's something the command, the seventh command in the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament, don't commit adultery, could never really accomplish in our life. It could never really accomplish sexual purity in our life fully. It can prod at us, like I was saying before, like poke at us from the outside, but it could never really change the heart. And if we're honest, we know this from experience, right? We know this. And a lot of you are, are trying a lot harder than others to kill sin. And, and maybe you're trying in a physical manner without the spirit, and we'll talk about that. But you're frustrated because you know it's not just a matter of not doing some physical act. It's a heart issue. And maybe you're just like at a point where you're saying, I hate my heart. I hate this. I hate fighting. I can't do it. It's exactly what the Bible is getting at. If you're thinking that, if that's your reality, welcome to the club. You know, welcome to being a human being who's stuck and mired in sin. That's just, that's the reality we all, we all find ourselves in. And that fortunately, by God's amazing grace, he sets out to fix. And, and so that's why, if we get to that point, it's why Jesus is trying to raise the bar so people like realize, I can't jump over that. I'm going to stop trying and go elsewhere to be saved. If we realize this, we know that we need something else rather than a commandment altogether. Really what we need is a type of resurrection right? We need recreation. We need a restart. We need to be a completely different person. We need Jesus. And Jesus doesn't say, try harder like the law. He says, it is finished. Very different. The law says, get out there and try harder. You can do it, but you actually can't. Jesus says, actually, I've finished the work of your salvation and the work of all of your good works that will ever exist in the world. I've accomplished them spiritually for you. I've lived them, and I'm going to give them to you as I apply my spirit to your heart after you believe in me. So his gospel says, and again, this is the amazing news. The gospel says God is the one working in you to help you defeat your inner enemy. He's on your side. It says in Ephesians 2, you are already past tense resurrected with Jesus Christ. He's he's welcomed you spiritually into his experience. You are a raised human being from the dead. Do you believe that? Do you live like that? Do you pray that God help me to apply that reality, uh, even though it's invisible and tough to grasp sometimes, help me to apply that reality uh, to the way I think and breathe and have my being in my day? You're already raised with Christ, the gospel says. He's made that possible. He's given it to you. So that's the gospel. That's the good news. If anything less is horrifying, Anything less than what I just said is the worst news you can ever imagine. If you are just justified, if you're just saved, but if you're not sanctified by his grace, it's the worst news in the world. It's, it's, you know, it's God saying, here's a whisper of my love for you. Oh, but you know what? I'm not going to love you that much to give you all these good works. I don't love you that quite that much. I mean, come on. Who loves that? That way. So it's not just bad news like for me present day. It's bad news in terms of who God is to you. You'll have an incomplete, joyless, actually kind of hateful picture of God in your mind. It will not prompt your sin-killing endeavors and abilities because you'll be on your own. And God won't be there uh, there next to you, better yet, inside you uh, to, to help you. He's not against you, the Bible says. If you're a Christian, God's not against you. I don't care what you've done today or yesterday or whenever. He's not against you. He's for you, the Bible says. He's for you. He's fighting your battles for you. He's fighting for you. He's dying for you. He's empowering you. He's on your side, on your team. He's your dad. So these are, these are gospel things as we talk about sanctification that we have to apply and remember. Otherwise, it's a horrifying reality for us. And again, it's, it's why we know something. You know, I was talking to Spence this week. It's it's interesting here to me, it was a, f- a fresh thing for me, that, um, that Paul did not quote the seventh commandment here, do not commit adultery. He doesn't say, all right, guys, let's get back to basics. Let's, let's talk about sanctification. You're saved. God's will is that you be sanctified. Remember what Exodus 20:14 says? It says, thou shall not or you shall not commit adultery, period, end of letter. Right? Does he say that? It's, isn't that fascinating what's left out a lot of times? Where is the Ten Commandments? He doesn't say don't commit adultery. He says God's will is that you be sanctified, which is from him. God wants you to be pure. 
He's intending it. He's meaning it. He's working for it. He's helping it to be accomplished. He's in a billion miles away saying, well, I saved that one, but hopefully they sanctify themselves. Holiness does not come from you. So stop living as though it is, or it does. Go to the source. Go to the headwaters. God's will. God says, my will is that you be forgiven. My will is that you believe in me. My will is that you receive my abiding helper, the Holy Spirit, so that you might walk sexually pure. That's my will. And that's good news. So that's the what. More on the what, anyway. The why is important here, too. And I got three things. I'll just kind of whip through two of these. And there's so much here. But a few things. Uh, why is this God's will? You might, some of you might be thinking, is this really a big deal? I'm just having... I'm committed here to my boyfriend or girlfriend. Uh, I, I'm just a little bit of sex can't hurt that much. Is it really harming people? Or you might be thinking, porn's private to me. Is it really harming other individuals or something like that? And I mention this because the why is always a good question, but also these thoughts are things I think that will help sanctify us as well uh, in, in this area. So <clears throat> the first two I'll do quick is that God wants this because he loves us and he knows that sexual sin hurts people. It destroys relationships. I see it all the time. It's selfish. It, it, it also hurts us. God loves you as well. That's not just the people you're hurting. He loves you and he knows what you're doing to your soul and to your relationship with him when you commit sexual sin. He knows that our, our witness, our evangelistic witness will be marred. Our joy will be threatened. We'll turn inward. We'll get angry and upset, less patient. So again, the, the thoughts that porn is private to me, who's it hurting, or a little sex now won't hurt my future marriage, will it? Our lives. Uh, if you've ever, had, some of you guys have had to have that conversation, um, you know, with your, the true love of your life, your spouse, that I've had sex with other people. And um, you, you know that's not a great, who loves to have that conversation, right? No one loves to have that. No one's happy that, oh, I'm so glad my spouse did this. It's never fun. It doesn't mean that God can't redeem your, your, your true marriage here. I'm not saying that either, and it's, it's by all means he can. The point is the reality that it destroys, it wrecks. It's like a wrecking ball. It's like a bull in a china shop. It's just, you can't, it's just wrecking things. And so, so those are lies. Sin is never private. It's never innocent. The, the private sins you have now are making you into a person that you probably don't want to be, and it's affecting your friendships. The private sin you have now will affect future relationships. It, it always does. It always affects things more than, more than you think. Always does. may not appear that way kind of in the present, but sin is a slow, hardening thing. And in a couple of years, maybe sooner, you'll be um, a friendless person, a joyless person, uh, far from God, not caring much about his grace, um, all kinds of just terrible things. It's never private. It's never, it's sex hurt, sexual sin hurts people. God knows that. And so it's part of why it's his will. He wants good things for us. Second is sexual sin is idolatry. Colossians 3.5 says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, which is idolatry. So sexual sin is the worship of another god. Something God does not want. Again, it's, it's a law. It's something that's it's a standard, but it's also something he knows is not good for us uh, as well. But sin, so sin then is, is a lot of things, but it's, it's also taking something otherwise good, at least in certain contexts, like in the marriage context, sex, and making it God in our life or abusing the good thing uh, somehow. And so when that sexual sin says, basically, whether you think this or not, we think it, when we're committing sexual sin, sexual sin says, God, you are not enough for me. God, I simply do not need you. Get out of my face. That's what it's doing because it's idolatry. It's replacing him with something else. And that will never give us salvation, of course, or joy, prolonged joy. Uh, of course, the, the gospel says the opposite, and so that's why, as Christians, we're saved unto a different mindset as believers, but the reality is, Christian or not, when we, when we sin sexually, that's what we're saying in the subtext of our sin. The third thing and final thing I'll spend a little bit more time on here, it's, it's a very important one, is that sexual sin tells the wrong story. 
And it, we talked a lot about this in our Song of Solomon series back in January to May. Uh, but, but in kind of a more synopsis way here today, what, what I mean here by that, this is a new idea to you, is that God created marriage and sex in that context to be a picture of the gospel, a symbol of himself as a bridegroom, the Bible says, and his church as a bride, a picture of two different entities, which is why heterosexuality is so important here, and homosexuality is uh, not the clear picture. It is sinful uh, because man and man, woman and woman are alike. Uh, man, and women, man and woman are different, just like God and people are different. But, so two different entities becoming one spirit. A picture of singular, non-divorcing, faithful love. That's what God wants marriage to be. He created marriage to not be about itself, but to speak beyond itself, to mean something beyond what it's kind of meaning in the immediate context. So marriage is not about you. It's not about you and your spouse. You didn't decide what to make marriage. I mean, God, God determined what that was for his purposes, his own purposes, not yours, though he wants you to be happy in marriage, of course, as well. But the reason you're, you're happy, or if you're happy, the reason you have happy days in your marriage is because of what marriage points to, and that is God is a faithful husband who dies for his wife. So God's idea of sexual love is always tied to the idea of faithful, heterosexual marriage, because it tells the right gospel story, the biblical story. Anything else is not biblical. It's not true. It's not true. It's not real. And God is about truth. He is the truth, and so he wants to tell true things. Faithful, loving, heterosexual marriage is... It, it, tells the right things about God rather than the wrong. So God's love then is, is restraint. Lo love is specific. Love is particular. Love is sacrificial. Good, sex, good sexual love happens in the commitment, the, the, safe, the safe confines of commitment in, uh, in marriage. And so to commit sexual sin then on, on whatever level, and, and sex is a piece of this too because 1 Corinthians 6 says, as a man and a woman have sex and become one flesh, so do I and my people become one spirit. He actually quotes the sex passage in Genesis 2 to talk about what's true of you and me if you're a Christian now spiritually. There's this sexual language, intercourse language actually, used about what's true. So that's actually what it, tends, what it intends to say about our relationship with God. Is we're so close now, nothing can break that bond. God gives himself completely to us. Completely. You can't look at the cross and say, God kind of gave a little bit of himself. He gave his life for you and me. It's romance language. It's also metaphorically sexual language too. So to commit sexual sin and to flip that and to commit sexual sin on whatever level, uh, single or married, is to tell the wrong story about Jesus. Jesus, in other words, doesn't go after other women or divorce us, figuratively speaking. That, that would be to say that he ends up deciding not to save some of us from our sins after all on, at the end, at judgment. God's going to change his mind. That's unfaithfulness. But God's faithful, praise God. He does not use people, then throw them away. God does not lie to us when he tells us he loves us. God is not flippant in his love for you and me. He's not a promise breaker. He never changes his mind once it's set. He's not thinking of other women, figuratively speaking, right now. He's focused on you. You know, and, and there's many Christians in the world. You've got to think about this on a communal level. You're not like, you are not the bride of Christ, like, alone. Like, the church is the singular bride. But the point is, he has a singular choosing love. He's, he's moved towards us. He's not thinking about others. He's thinking about you right now. He's thinking about you. He loves you. Did you know that? Uh, a few uh, weeks ago, Aletha, I asked her permission to say this, but just to get a little bit, uh, well, it's not that explicit, but just real, I guess, to you guys for a second, um, that Aletha said that whenever we have, when our, when our sex life is healthy in our marriage, uh, one of the things that Aletha thinks in context of that and what blesses her is the idea that I chose her. Over and against other women, most of whom are accessible online right now in all kinds of forms, I chose her. And so sex then isn't just physically pleasing, it's spiritually pleasing in the marriage. It, it, it gives her, it, it gives her um, of course I can feel this too, but speaking for my wife, it, it gives her um, a picture of love that's committed and that's faithful. 
And to be chosen is to be loved. And to be loved in this manner is to reflect the gospel because God chooses to save us. He's singular in his love for us. But sexual sin tells the opposite. It tells these things in the bottom. Promiscuity tells us that God's love is not particular. It's selfish, and he may not save you in the end. And so verse 8 then here about the Gentiles not knowing God, you know, it's interesting that, that he says this. Those who don't know, really know who God is, can't do this. Uh, but Christians who know God, who know this story, want to help tell it with their sexual lives, whether they're single or whether they're married. They want to help tell this story. So a Christian who knows God, knows the gospel, and cares deeply not just about God's will and his grace that saves and empowers, but also cares about demonstrating the right kind of love to the church and world. So therefore, again, it's just inconsistent. This is part of why, this is part of the why, remember, why it's God's will here for our sexual purity. It's inconsistent for a Christian to go all in on the fact that God has a singular, never-ending, faithful love for his bride, the church, but then physically pursue an idolatrous, harmful, pluralistic love in their lives, which really is not love at all. It's, it's actually more than inconsistent. It, it communicates the wrong things about God. Actually, let me say it this way. Your sexuality preaches sermons all the time. You might not think that, but you can't control that. What you've determined your sexual life to be, Christian or not, your sexuality preaches sermons, either really good ones or really bad ones. You can't stop it from happening. You're saying something about God and his character because God made gender and God made marriage and God made sex. You're saying something about him and his faithfulness or his, him and his unfaithfulness, his hatefulness, by how flippant you are or how patient and waiting you are, how singular you are for your spouse if you're married. You, t you tell a story. You don't have an option here, you guys. I don't have an option. The Bible's clear on this. You, you can't create a context where that doesn't happen. So the point is, what's, what kind of sermon are you preaching? What are you saying about God? with your sexual, sexual lives. So that's three things on the why. There, there are more, but three big things. And finally here, a few things on the how. How is this accomplished? Though, so, man, this could be talk to us because this is going to give you maybe a taste. But if this is new to you especially, it will be, uh, it'll be quick. I have four things, most from this passage here. One is pray. You can't do this. Can't do it. Sanctification is in the Holy Spirit, not in your flesh. It's in the Holy Spirit. So pray, beg God to change your heart and to give you ways out from your temptation. Make it a regular, make it a regular thing. Second, commune. Uh, you, you can't fight this without Jesus, which means you can't fight this without the church. Because the church is where Jesus is. Uh, sanctification is a community project. P Paul says here, I'm writing to you all, remember, not to you as individuals, you as a church, to collectively, communally do this, to fight sin together. That looks like confession, openness. Looks like you all being gospel preachers in small and big ways to people you know and love, your community groups, your friends here at the church, people that you're a trusted voice for. It looks like fighting a battle with people. Many battles were not won in history by a single person. It's never happened, except Christ, I guess, but you know what I'm saying, on a human level. Never been, never been, uh, never happened. You will sin more when you're alone than, with, than when you're with God's people. Promise you that's the case. There might be little exceptions here and there in your life, but you will sin more when you're alone than, with your reg than when you're regularly with God's people because when you're regularly with God's people, you're with Jesus. I've, I just see it all the time in my life, other people's lives. We have to value church. We have to value the communal aspect to this. Third, uh, run. <laughs> I think there's a, there's a place here to be motivated by fear of judgment, as Paul says in verses 6 and 7. Let me read that again. Do all this because the Lord is an avenger in all things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, there's a warning for Christians here, for God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. There is a place to be motivated by judgment. God is, through Paul, saying, judgment's coming. 
I'm saving people who are believing in me and who are living as though my cross and resurrection given to them. The, the double grace, Calvin talked about, the double grace is actually a real thing for them. They actually believe it and apply it to their life, not those who just say they do but, but really don't. The fourth, though, and most important, because the first three are not enough without this fourth one, the fourth one is, is simple but robust belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. What I mean by that is, you and I need to be motivated by grace in all its forms. So the two sides of the coin, again, the cross and the empty tomb, should both inform our existence and our reality and how exactly we wage war with sin. So on the cross side of things, it looks like this. It looks like, do I actually believe that I've been forgiven? Does this forgiveness of God change you? We have to replace our habit with something more beautiful. It's a, a common sociological thing some of you might be aware of, but I see this in my life and our kids we're trying to break habits in. You can't just tell someone with a habit to stop it. Has that ever worked in your life? Just stop it? <laughs> but what does work is replacing the habit with something else. This is exactly, it's a very Christian idea. You know, we can't just say stop sexual sin. We have to replace it with something more beautiful, something that, that captures our attention with more, uh, with more beauty. And the answer to that, of course, is Jesus hanging on a cross. Does this forgiveness captivate you like it, like it does on a human level? We talked about that before. On a divine level, know it better so it captivates you. But then the flip side of the coin is the truth that Jesus has actually empowered you as well with his resurrection. Do you believe this? He's actively for you and living in you right now to give you a way out, and that you are a raised person not like your old self. That's just a simple practice of do you believe that or not. And I can't force you guys. I can hold it out there and say to myself, this is what God is saying to us, but it's, it's up to you to say, I believe that, I'm going to live like it or not. But don't go and say that, it's, that, that that's not true or that it's up to me. Uh, God is giving you resurrection power too. It's not, it's not out there for you to grab. So this is the way a sanctified Christian thinks. Less about himself and more about Christ. It's a, more of a byproduct than it is um, a, uh, a, a reality. So, so we have to do that. I'll, I'll end with this. We've got to replace our propensity to sin sexually with a picture of a God who bled horrifically on a cross for our sins and love for us, then rose again to overwhelm death. You can pray, you can run, you can commune, but if you don't have that more beautiful picture in your heart, but also that, um, that empowering vision of your new reality and, and asking God to apply that to the way you think and have your being and kill sin, if, if you don't say, I'm a child of God, and, and speak against the temptation to look at porn and say, no, no, I am a child of God. I don't do that anymore. God has, God has purchased me back from what I used to just run to like a dog to its vomit. I am raised. And you speak against that verbally. If that's not part of your arsenal, your gospel arsenal, equip your mind to do such things. Speak what God has done for you against sin. Speak over it. Don't approach it as though I'm a good person. Mm, try hard. You know, like the Care Bears that have that, well, whatever, thing where they hold hands and their tummies would glow and all of a sudden this thing that would happen in the middle of the circle and whatever. It's, that's not... <laughs> The, that's not the Christian vision. It's, it's, uh, the Christian vision is it's applied to you outside of you. Stop trying and believe more. And God will give you the victory. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your grace in the gospel today. Help us to rejoice uh, and apply this to the way that we worship here uh, through a few more songs and take communion. In Christ's name, amen. All right, guys, we're going to go through a time of communion here now.